Hello, and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to finish his dissertation, teach a class, and then eventually to get a job. So it's the doldrums of the semester right now. It's it's mid-sems week. All, all of the students are exhausted. They are finishing up exams and projects, and they're pretending to do their reading, and they are not sleeping, and they are overwhelmed. And us in grad school are kind of in our own little doldrums where we have settled into the patterns of our working days, and, you know, we just kind of don't see the end of it. I, I'm tired. I... I am uh, uh, a little bit uninspired this Sunday morning. Um, I'm looking ahead to class tomorrow with the you know kind of anxiety and an anticipation and dread that I've I've come to look forward to class and I I just don't know what's going to happen. I don't know whether the students will grab hold of the material and 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 love it. I don't know if if you know there will be any sudden bursts of inspiration on their parts. I don't know if they'll come just completely dull and tired and 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 not prepared and i don't know how i'm going to show up it's 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 a a little bit of a, a, a an unknown possibility um i'm nervous too because next class uh i'm going to give out mid-semester evaluations this is like a little bit of teaching best practice that that we've been encouraged to do hand out students a little sheet of paper basically say like how am i doing like how's how's how are you feeling in this class? An anonymous survey. And, you know, I'm a good teacher. Usually I'm, I'm, I'm a good teacher. I've gotten pretty good evaluations over the past few years. But this class being so strange, being, you know, new for me and for the students, being new for the department, uh, being a, a new way to approach history is, is, is I'm nervous. I'm nervous about what uh, they'll say, I have a feeling that some of them are getting it. I have a feeling that some of them aren't getting it and are completely lost. But I don't know if the students who are getting it are just good at everything and, and aren't really engaged in my class in particular. Or they're just good at school. And I don't know if the students who are lost are lost because, you know, they're the students who will be lost or if the students who are lost are lost because I didn't do a good job of leading them through the material. And it's 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 hard because, you know, what you want to get when you teach a class is you want to bring a student towards this difficult and interesting bit of thinking that you have come to. You want to take them down a, a, a path that's that's a little bit hard to get to. And sometimes it's it's hard to take students all the way there. Sometimes, you know, you have to lay out the basics and that's it. That's all that you can can hope for a class. Sometimes you're able to lay out the basics and then with some students you're able to show them like a little bit extra. And, and sometimes you're able to, you know, lay out the basics, show the students something a little bit extra. And also the students start to creatively engage with the material itself and you can see them actually like thinking about it, which is amazing. And that's what you want. And in this class, unfortunately, it, it, that that moment has only happened a couple times. So I think about class. I think about what it would be like to be a student in this class, ignorant of, of, of the material, juggling a bunch of different things. And I think about how they might come to those moments of understanding. And I'm not sure that I've brought them there yet. Anyway, this has been your Sunday morning self-doubt with Brendan Mackey 
a little side project of making of a historian. We do during the middle of the semester. But let's you didn't download this podcast and press play to listen to me complain about my uncertainty about my teacherly persona. You came here for history, and so we are going to give you history. So over the past couple weeks, we've been discussing the changes in the global economy that happened because of the Industrial Revolution. Now, three weeks ago, we talked about what the Industrial Revolution actually was, and we talked about that through the lens of a debate, which was what on earth caused it? You know, there's a lot of people who think that what caused the Industrial Revolution was smart people making stuff, right? Like, there's just geniuses, like a million Steve Jobses in 18th century England who are all tinkering on, you know, iPad version beta, which is a, a steam engine, you know? That's that's one idea. Another idea is that it's about humans' relationship to the environment, humans' relationship particularly to energy, that the Industrial Revolution what caused it, what was special about it, wasn't the genius of it. There was genius, nobody's doubting that. But what was special was that humans were relating to, uh, you know, the energy accounting of of the world in a, a radically different way, instead of getting all of their energy pretty much indirectly from the sun, from, you know, photosynthesis through eating wheat or feeding horses who eat oats or, you know, what, what, whatever, through muscle power, through an organic economy. This view of the Industrial Revolution said that what the big change was, was that people started to dig up energy from the ground in the form of coal, of fossil fuels, that that's the reason why the Industrial Revolution exists. So that was an explanation for for what it was. The the two weeks ago, in the subsequent class, we we, we talked about how this change in production affected the people who worked. We discussed how these changes in the way that machines and energy and people interacted made things different for workers. And it's a complicated story. You know, back in the day, you know, 50 years ago, I would be telling you a story about how the Industrial Revolution caused a massive amount of misery um, amongst the working population and, and drove a lot of inequality. And that that's true. That is true. There was a lot of day-to-day misery in the factories of the Industrial Revolution. But, but we've come to realize that it's a lot more of a complicated story, that, that factory work was only one part of, of of how people worked in the Industrial Revolution. This is supported by our new view that the Industrial Revolution was not um, just about machines. It wasn't just about factories. It wasn't just about steam engines. It was about how people used energy. From that standpoint, there's a lot of different ways of working with this new cheap energy regime. We also learned that, that amongst this diversity and new ways of working, that some people were better off than others. In the cities, you know, urban manual laborers tended to actually have quite a bit of money, more than than people in, in rural areas did, and eat a decent amount of food. What was different was that the culture of the cities had changed drastically, leading sometimes to family dislocation, to depression, to, you know, the what we would call the the diseases of affluence that we have now, or maybe the diseases of despair that we are complaining about these days, addiction violence, uh, depression, alienation, enemy, suicide. 
So we talked last week about the people who made things. This week, we talk about the people who consume things. Now, in some ways, I, I feel like this consumption-based history should be like what we talk about all the time. It should be the primary, you know, lens into the Industrial Revolution. It should be the first thing we talk about rather than the third. You know, back in the day, we'd talk about factories and manufacturers because, you know, people made things in America. It was it was it was part of our folk memory and folk experience to to know factory workers to be concerned about factory workers. We would have seen the inside of a factory probably as a well-lived person. But these days, you know, we're mostly consumers. Making stuff has has become so geographically dislocated that most people who listen to me probably have not done the sort of manual labor that we talk about in the Industrial Revolution. So it doesn't feel important, even though obviously it is. But what feels important, what we can't understand is the changes in consumption. This modern world of consumption that we live in has on the opposite edge of its face, the changes of production in the Industrial Revolution. So when we talk about the changes of production in the Industrial Revolution, we also have to talk about how people came to buy the things and use them and 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 make them part of their lives. And in some ways, that's that's a much more resonant story for people today because we can see it still in the way we interact with the world really, really potently. So over the 19th century, this wealth of cheap energy and cheap material goods, and as we get deeper into the century, the wealth of you know bulk transit that allows us to get a lot of manufactured and raw materials from very far away, makes a ton of different spaces of consumption that become really, you know, very familiar to us. So I think that like the most emblematic space of consumption is is the department store. Um, we know department stores is kind of a, a little bit of an atavistic has been, you know, like it's 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 something that your grandma, my grandma was excited about department stores. Uh, but it, it, in the time when they, they they first came about in the, the middle of the 19th century, they were incredibly revelatory for people. They were they were amazing. What made them amazing? Well, the department store was a a gigantic store that had departments. It was a superstore, a store for everything. You didn't just go to the milliners to buy your hat and then go down to an importer of fabric to buy fabric to make a scarf. No, with the department store, you could just go to the department store and buy everything that you needed. And it was beautiful. Shopping at the department store was not a chore. It was fun. You were meant to go there and just walk around and experience it. And it was a palace to consumption. It was it was a place that people enjoyed going to, that 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 they thought was a, you know, cultural experience in its own right. Go if you live in a a, a city that had a 19th century like Chicago or New York or or many places in Europe, go to the, your local department store if it's still around, like the ones that were built in the 19th century and look at the plaster moldings on the columns look at these you know the 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 painted ceilings that they 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 left up up you know seven stories up look at 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 the at the tiny details in almost every single you know act 
of architecture in those department stores. And and why you get that is because the department store was meant to be a solid thing. It wasn't just this evanescent, you know, mall that 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 rose up in three weeks and and and, and was placeless. No, the department store was an event. And in the department store, you got the manufactured and exotic goods that were, you know, emblematic of the Industrial Revolution. You could buy your cotton, you know, made in the the mills of Manchester. You could buy your tea, you know, sourced increasingly from an incredibly wide uh, range of 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 imperial and colonial uh, 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 trade relationships. And there, you know, you could see novelties of the 19th century working world, well-dressed young women working for a wage, respectably, you know, shop girls. This was shocking to a lot of people in the 19th century uh, to have like a single woman, well, you know, with, with, with wonderful clothes and makeup, like working for a wage. That was, that was something revelatory. And that's something directly caused by these environmental changes. Another big space of consumption in the 19th century was the restaurant. You know, this is the, the time when the restaurant goes from being a, a, a relatively rare urban phenomenon in Paris and London to being something that people go to all over the world. We think, how can that be? Isn't the restaurant just like, you know, always there? Like, don't the Babylonians have restaurants? I mean, sure, the Babylonians would have places where you could buy food and eat it. But the restaurant's different. What, what's, what, what, what's different about the restaurant, what's easy to take for granted is the restaurant is kind of a pretty much always open place where you get to go and have a choice of food and eat that food by yourself. That's novel in the 19th century. That's something that's, that's wild and new and people are kind of amazed at. Like, think about it. Like, before the 19th century invention of the restaurant, if you wanted to eat a meal in a city, you'd go to a an ordinary or a pub or a public house, and sometimes they'd just serve dinner at like seven. And if you wanted a hot meal, that that's when you had dinner at seven. And and they didn't serve it at your table. You'd eat it at a big table with other people. Maybe if you were rich, you could have it at your your table. You'd have have your own special dinner that you might order in advance. But if you just walked in off the street, you'd probably sit down family style with a bunch of people you didn't know and eat together, which was uncomfortable. People complained about it all the time. And, you know, if it's just a dinner that's laid out at seven, there's no menu. There's no choice. You don't like sit down and get a wealth of 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 30 options that you can order and get whipped up, you know, just right then and there for you, like automatically. And this, too, I want to insist, is something about the change between the relationship between humans and the natural world. Here, as in so many things in the 19th century, we see a taming of the natural world. We see how the natural world is becoming put under ever greater control because of the greater material prosperity brought about by cheap energy. This is a little bit more tenuous. It's a little bit hard to make the direct connection, but just just think of it this way. In the 19th century, there was a lot cheaper food for people who were living in cities, a lot cheaper meat especially, and a lot greater variety of food that was, you know, packaged in a lot more uh, sustainable and and, and shelf-stable forms. You know, you had the beginnings of refrigeration, you had the beginnings of really long-distance meat trades, and also because of the 
uh, exploitation of external fertilizer sources, which is something I'd love to talk about on this podcast, but we're not going to have time to do, basically because people started to understand that you could use nitrogen-rich things like guano to fertilize crops to increase production, you had just a lot more efficiency in growing. And that meant that that there was a variety of food, an abundance of food that you could buy on the market. And because people were changing the way that they worked, because increasingly women were going into the workplace and families, because increasingly people had a little bit of disposable income, you could use that disposable income on some of this wealth of food and Use that disposable income to get a person also working for a wage, a chef, to cook it up for you right then and there and serve it to you hot and ready in the center of the city. Another thing that 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 blossoms in the 19th century that's that's really emblematic of this new culture of consumption is is mail order. You know, we think of the 21st century with Amazon as the rise of mail order. But the 19th century was the real rise of mail order. Something like the Sears catalog would go to people's houses, especially in America. And you could select from a gigantic range of material. It was a printed, uh, a printed department store, pretty much. And you would select these things in the mail order catalog, and they would come in a couple months by mail anywhere on America. You could order a house by mail from the Sears catalog, a pre-built house that would come with instructions that you would then follow to build a house by mail. You could not, as far as I know, build a house from things you get on Amazon. So while this might be a little bit abstract, so I'm going to tell one story to illustrate it. It's it, 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 it's a, a wide-ranging story, so uh, you it's going to touch on a lot of things. So we know that the factory changed the way that things were made. But we also have to think about how the same process of using coal to generate power changed the way that things were traded. Now, with very efficient steam engines, small, you know, high pressure steam engines, people could now move things differently. Instead of using like a horse to take your goods from place to place, you could now use a network of railways and steam uh, ships. This meant that goods now started to travel much quicker and much cheaper. And because of the economy of steamships and especially railroads, bulk goods could move cheaper. Heavy items like, you know, bales of cotton and gigantic bushels of wheat and people could now be moved across the entire world much faster, cheaper, more reliably, and easier than ever before. Now, this enabled a burst of what's called Smithian growth. That means non-technological economic growth. It means economic growth that comes not from an invention, but because you get a bigger market, and within that bigger market, you're able to get more efficiencies from a greater division of labor. Um, you know, people are able to work better because you just have a larger, you know, group of people working together. Um, and this is 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 expanded when we have the invention of refrigeration in the middle of the 19th century. This led to both the refrigerated rail car and refrigerated steam uh, steamship shipping. It meant that you could now ship meat from place to place very quickly, dead meat, butchered meat. 
Before, meat was something that you could only really buy locally. Like, you could move cows, but that, you know, took energy from the cows. A fatted cow that you then walked from, like, Wyoming to a, a market in Cleveland would not be so fat when it got to Cleveland. But if you then ship that cow in a railway car, it doesn't have to walk. If you then butcher it in Chicago and then bring the meat through a refrigerated rail car to New York, it doesn't go bad. It doesn't go bad as quickly. And this connected regions of the world that had been loosely populated by pastoralists, cow people, cowboys, with the city. It connected the bellies of city people with the hard work of pastoralists in places not just like the American West, not just like Wyoming, but with places all over the world, like uh, the Pampas of Argentina or uh, New Zealand or Australia. And it came to be that this led to a lot more people eating meat, especially big meat, that big delicious beef that that that, that has such a, a massive cultural uh, confluence in our lives. It's, it's, it's why a place like Chicago exists and exists so large in the economy. Chicago exists because it's the confluence of river and rail networks. And because it was the confluence of river and rail networks, it became the place where the meat was brought to be butchered in these massive meat warehouses that then, after the meat was butchered, was shipped all across the nation in refrigerated rail cars. And this changed the U.S. diet. It made us fond of hamburgers and steaks, which we ate in restaurants. Imagine then a moment of this 19th century consumer boom. You walk into Marshall Fields in Chicago, the big department store, the beautiful department store, and you go with your family in your suit, not to buy things, but to go for a dinner in the Walnut Room, their dining room, their restaurant. And there you look on the menu where you can get exotic groceries from all over the world, groceries that people 100 years ago would not have been able to afford, groceries that 300 years ago people would not be able to imagine would come to Chicago, groceries that 500 years ago would not be in Chicago at all because Chicago would not have been a city. And there you order your steak, which came in a rail car from Wyoming and was butchered there in Chicago, packaged, sold to Marshall Fields, and then bought by you, a professional worker, going to Marshall Fields for your special day. And it wasn't that special. It wasn't a once-in-a-lifetime trip. It wasn't like meat consumption had been 200 years ago. It wasn't, it wasn't seasonal. It wasn't celebratory. You weren't eating beef because it was Christmas time, and that's when the slaughter came. You were eating beef because you wanted to, because you had the choice. You were feeling, your inkling in your stomach that you wanted to eat was now able to be turned into reality much easier than ever before. And that's the world we live in now. If I want passion fruit, I can find passion fruit. It might be hard, it might be expensive, but I can find passion fruit. If I want to get a book, I click on Amazon, I get a book. The world responds to my, my whims in a way that it didn't before. And this is the beginning of that. This is the beginning when consumption, if you have enough money, if you live in one of the places blessed to be at the confluence of these of these different factors, you can choose to do something and it happens. Now, I want to think conceptually about how we can relate consumer society with the environment, how we can relate this new ability to 
turn our whims into real things, how it, how, how it works historically. Because it's one thing to recognize that we live in a consumer society. It's another way to tell a story about that that changes over time and see how the actual actors work out. So I'm going to tell that story conceptually by, by looking at how we can relate fashion with nature. So let's think of, of, of the different processes by which consumer goods were connected with nature. So the expansion of trading networks caused a massive change in the power of people. People could use the power of fossil fuels or gunpowder or steam and ship goods all over the earth. It brought exotic luxuries closer to home. Um, and, and, and let's look at, at, at what that meant. Well, in the 19th century, what did people at home want? Well, one of the things that people always want is clothing. They want to look cool. In the 19th century, one of the things that, that, that this whim of looking cool could be turned into was awesome hats. 19th century women's hats, as you probably know just from your you know, Netflix period dramas, were incredible things. They were big, they were wild, they were ornate, they were shocking. And they used birds, sometimes whole birds, sometimes many whole birds perching on a hat, sometimes exotic whole birds with colorful plumage, sometimes, you know, wings and, and tail feathers, or just a bag of feathers shipped all over the world. And this caused a massive die-off of exotic birds. People to, 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 to feed this whim for consumption were going out and shooting a lot of birds. And so those beautiful birds that humans liked to look at so much that they saw them and they were like, I want that for a hat. Those birds started to die. People started to notice, but people couldn't do anything about it because it was hard to connect the dying of the birds in places far away as Indonesia or places far away as Wyoming with an individual person's whim for a cool hat. How is my cool hat, a woman in the 19th century might say, related to all these people in Borneo I don't care about? Not even people, all these birds. And here I want to point out that we see a new thing. We see something what we might describe as an alienation from the natural world, that even though we have this massive ability, this power now to change our whims into something real, that leads to a cultural disconnect where we recognize that those things that we're getting that satisfy our whims, are their stories aren't fully told to us. You order something mail order from Sears, you don't know who makes it. You don't know a person behind it. You work in a factory, you don't know who consumes your goods. You don't even know, probably, face-to-face -face the person who is profiting off of your labor. This is what Marx called alienation, but we don't need to take a Marxian perspective on it. We just need to recognize that here in the 19th century, with the rise of massive amounts of bulk goods, more and more of the things that people ate and consumed and wore and bought and read were made by people they didn't know and never could know. Look, 18th century, the people I studied in the 18th century, sure, they bought stuff from people they didn't know, but not on such a scale, not on such an unimaginable scale. You know, you bought a book, you might know a bookbinder. It was possible that you knew a bookbinder. You bought some nails, it's possible you knew a person who made nails or an ironsmith. In the 19th century and in the 20th century, that's not true. I have never met a person who makes computer parts. 
Never. I wouldn't even know where to start. I wouldn't even know where to ask for such a person. But I use computers every day and they're so fundamental to my personality. That's weird. I barely meet farmers or see animals that I eat. And yet I eat animals every day. There's an alienation. But this alienation opens up something new. It opens up a political view. People started to recognize that they needed to think differently about the human relationship with the natural world because this, you know, unequal power that people were have to turn their whims into reality was causing a massive amount of environmental change. We can think of this as the beginning of environmental thinking or maybe meta-human thinking. The, the, the beginning of people recognizing that human activity was becoming so powerful that it could have unintended consequences on the Earth systems, right? That in the 18th century, it wasn't imaginable that, that, that somebody could, you know, cause the extinction of entire species. I mean, that's not entirely true. Some, some weird animals like dodos were wiped out. But it, it was, you know, how could you wipe out the bison? Nobody in the 19th century would believe that you could wipe out a bison. God made the bison. And you couldn't wipe out something that God made. Humans didn't have that kind of power. But in the 19th century, it became an attested fact. And so it's important to notice how these things interact, how the drive for fashion, forever quickening cycles of consumer culture pushed people to, you know, exploit natural resources to a greater and greater extent, and how that exploitation caused some people to recognize that we needed to make a cultural change. And I said it was political. That's important. Sometimes when we think about environmentalism, we think of it as kind of just a, a fact banquet. If people only knew the facts, then, then, then they would change their behavior. Show an infographic of, of how many tons of CO2 are produced by my hamburger and I'll change my behavior. But that's not true because it's politics. It's about a division of scarce resources. And so people have to make a story about it. People have to make a story about who to blame, who's wrong, who's right, what we should do about it collectively. And so this birth of environmental thinking in the 19th century, was always connected with politics. So when people started to recognize that there were populations of animals that were being decimated by women's, primarily, desire for feathers, what happened was political. It was highly gendered. There were waves of... Uh, campaigns in the late 19th century to get women to stop wearing feathered hats. And this wasn't done neutrally. This was expressing the degradation of the natural world, not as a result of, you know, the, the imbalance between the power of humans and the natural world. It was, it was, it was, it was understood as a female disability to relate to nature in a good way. The problem wasn't that humans had grown too powerful and needed to watch what they did. The problem was that frivolous women were spending too much money and encouraging bad men to go out and shoot beautiful songbirds and massacre them. And so there were a number of different campaigns, campaigns for women not to wear feathers in their hats. You got, you know, people in Smith College in the 19th century, women in Smith College, I should say, taking pledges not to wear 
feathers in their hats, and you got men trying to get other men not to shoot songbirds, and it went back and forth with men putting blame on women, women putting the blame on themselves, men putting blame on the sports hunters who shot the, the birds, but, but it was always politicized. It was always something that was wrapped up in a human story. And this is important because we, 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 we should understand that at the beginning of this birth of meta-environmental thinking, it, it, it's not, it's hard to get to the species level like understanding of what's happening and hard to do that without messing it up or, 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 or I don't want to say messing it up because it's necessary without, without, without coloring it with our biases, without, without letting our cultural holdovers affect the way that we, we view these changes. Consumption is a cultural thing. It's about who we are. We wear our clothes. We look into the mirror and see them on our bodies. We eat our food. And so the solution to the problem of consumption is, is, is necessarily cultural. It's why people get so pissed off at vegans, because vegans seem to blame meat eaters and, 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 and dairy eaters in a, a really moral way for, for, for their pleasure, for their bodily pleasure. Oh, no, I don't eat meat is not a neutral thing. It's, it's a political statement that hurts people, that, 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 that people feel is, 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 is a comment on their own moral standing. So that's the, the, the development, you know, messily and briefly. God, I don't even know if, it's, if, you're, if you're able to follow it. This is the doldrums, remember. But that's the development of one bit of how people started to recognize that changes in consumption were affecting the natural world and tried to stop it. The feather industry dried out in the early 20th century. Um, after the First World War especially, people just stopped wearing feathers in their hats. And after the 1950s, people really stopped wearing hats at all. But it took a long time. Now, I want to just zoom out and, and, and think about another driving force, how we can relate consumption with the environment, and that's and that's fashion. So an interesting thing happened over over the course of the you know 400 years that's our object of study, and that is that the speed of fashion increased, and the number of goods that became fashionable expanded. In the early 18th century, you get people complaining about fashion being really quick. You buy a suit of clothes, and then 10 years later, it's out of fashion. By the end of the 18th century, this, in fashionable places like, like Paris and London, had increased to a year. Now, today, fashion on Instagram moves you know, weekly, monthly, because we're able to manufacture stuff so quickly. Now, this means that there is a greater pressure on resources than there would be if we weren't like interested in, in, in keeping the things that we buy current. If you just have a beaver hat and it lasts your whole life, you need one beaver hat. If you need a beaver hat every year because the style of beater, beaver hats matters, you might need more beaver hats. In the 17th century, Prince Charles in Britain uh, in the early 17th century, he he one year bought 57 beaver hats. That means a ton of beavers. You don't need 57 beaver hats. You need one if, if, if you need it at all. But beaver hats, the cool, 
item of 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 consumption in the in, in the 17th century. He needed a lot of them. The next year, he bought another 50. And this fashion drive increased the pressure on natural resources. It also increased profit. It also allowed people making things in factories in the 18th and 19th centuries to make more things. The early Wedgwood potteries, for example, weren't just good because they were mass-produced. They were good because they were cool, because they were fashionable, because they were able to consistently make a wide variety of manufactured goods that changed that changed season by season, that were branded, that were marketed to people, that people thought, wow, I need this. You didn't just buy one set of Wedgwood pottery and that was it. You bought the new set of Wedgwood pottery. You bought creamware and then and then Jasperware and 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 you kept on updating your 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 China sets so that you could impress your friends. And that meant more sales for Wedgwood and also meant more coal burned, more clay ripped out of the ground. In the 19th century, this speeds up, and in the 20th century, it speeds up even quicker as, as fashion expands not just to clothing, not just to some consumer goods, but to durable goods as well. You know this because of our weird relationship with phones. A phone, you know, when I was a kid, lasted for 30 years. You just had a phone. Didn't need to update it at all. Didn't have any apps. A phone when I was in college probably could last for five or six years. You know, we called them bricks. Well, we called them bricks later. But those dumb phones, those mobile phones that just laid in your pocket, you could, you could drop them any number of times and they'd still work. I mean, you use them for texting. You use them to call. But that was about it. You couldn't could barely go on the internet with them. But now phones that can do such an amazing variety of things that you might even be listening to this podcast on you know, how long are you going to keep your phone for? Three years? Four years? Two? One year? But that fashion, that's not necessary. That's fashion. That's, that's, that's our urge for the new. And even though it might seem like it's necessary, it, 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 it isn't. And even though it might seem kind of natural, it isn't. It's something that happens through history, that, that speeding up of the durable goods market. And even though it might seem, you know, not a problem. It is problematic because when we get this idea in our society that we should be constantly updating every single thing that we own, it, it puts more pressure on natural resources. It makes us consume more and more material goods. It, it makes our environmental footprint that much larger. And that is tied again into culture, into how we consume things, and into how we react to these spaces of consumption. Anyway, I'm going to think through these problems and hopefully, God, hopefully tomorrow I will be able to uh, get my students to a, to a good place and, and express this in, in an interesting and clear manner. I hope that this was interesting and clear to you. I'm sorry if it wasn't. It is the doldrums. It is the Midsems week. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Thank you uh, to the listeners who've been emailing me um, or tweeting me or reaching out somehow. It means a lot. It's it's nice to know that you're out there. 
Um, thank you to uh, my mother-in-law, Paula Sanders, for uh, telling her friends about the show. Uh, thank you, people I don't know, for telling your friends about the show. Thank you to Duncan Barton for making our illustration. And thank you to Jonathan Lear for making our music. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever else your podcasts are sold. And tell a friend it really, really works. Um, and I'll speak to you uh, next week when we're going to be talking about another kind of bulk good that gets transported around the world, people. We're going to talk about the 19th century explosion in migration. Thank you for listening. Thank you.